there is a library that exists at the nexus where all other universes collide. Inevitably, things wind up there by mistake. Books, artifacts, people. This is the place where things from all universes end up when they get lost. This is the Eternity Archives. everyone, and welcome to the Eternity Archives, a bi-weekly tabletop RPG podcast where we play multi-dimensional archivists working for a library. This time we are going to be playing the extremely spooky What's So Cool About Monster Blood, which I am very excited to go ahead and share with you. Let's go ahead and introduce ourselves before we start talking about the game a little bit more, though. My name's Ziva, my pronouns are she, her, and I play Linda, the adorable human office lady, who for this arc is going to be serving as the anchor. Hi, I'm Dorka. My pronouns are she, her. I play Zen, who is a very tall, very scaly lizard warrior princess. And I am Vappy. My pronouns are they, them. I play Real De Jaquel, who is a little tiefling. Unfortunately, they are a gamer. Uh, very sorry about that. Also, it's really, it's really funny that you were like, we work for a library. It's just like, not the library. We just yeah, work for library. a library. <laughs> we, just kinda- <laughs> we just work for like uh, San Diego public number two. Yeah. <laughs> we just kind of. <laughs> this is just parks and recreation, but yeah. the library equivalent. <laughs> we just kind of uh, roam the multiverse just working in a library volunteering occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We keep having to refile the books because people just take them and put them wherever. And I hate that. <laughs> So with us today, um, we have a special guest, my old friend, Mikey. Mikey, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your experience uh, with tabletop games, and give us a little a little sneak peek of who your archivist is going to be. Yeah, so my name is Mikey Z. My pronouns are he, him. I have been playing tabletop role-playing games technically since Ziva and I met in high school, but then I took like a big, I played a game before my senior year of high school over AOL Instant Messenger group chat, and um, I played a game of Vampire the Requiem. That's a chunky one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't remember anything about the actual system. I just remember that we had like a taxi driver in Hawaiian shirts that would take us like be our fast travel system. And then I promptly forgot that tabletop role playing games existed for like five <laughs> years until I just happened to stumble across some actual play that featured a YouTuber I like. And then I fell like headfirst into tabletop role playing games and the community. Um, so I've actually like worked on um, just some little tabletop role-playing games here and there. I've written some of my own games. I've GM'd a bunch of actual plays. Yeah, so I've done a lot around tabletop role-playing games. It's actually kind of funny that Ziva and I, like, we've kept up, but don't talk, like, every day or anything. But then we kind of diverged and then converged again in terms of our interests. (laughs) It's very funny. And so, (laughs) like, we both found, like, the indie and online tabletop role-playing game community separately. And then Ziva just, like, DMs me out of the blue one day and was like, hey, do you want to come on my podcast? I'm like, oh, you have a podcast. That's so exciting. So, yeah, I am going to be playing a 
character that didn't get his due. He was like for a one shot and I kind of fell in love with him, but didn't get to have enough time with him. So I'm really excited to flesh him out more. So he is an independent wrestler. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Who's also like a grad student. I decided to keep the bartending too, you know, because it doesn't pay. He has to work a couple jobs. He has like his passion job and then his actual job that probably pays more money. And he is from Ohio because I didn't want to be too obvious. I grew up in the East Coast region, but there's a lot of weird Ohio stuff uh, in the state that I now call my home um, (laughs) that I think... Is it Ohio? Yeah, is it Ohio? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I now live in Ohio. Welcome to Ohio. Now you're in Ohio. Ohio's Um, for lovers. There's weird Ohio (laughs) stuff in Ohio. There is. We have a, um, not to get too off track, but we have a field full of stone corn statues that are sized like people. Oh, God. Anyone that comes to visit that likes creepy stuff, I'm like, we have to go see the weird field of corn in Dublin, Ohio. Just look it up. It's on Atlas Obscura. It is so bizarre. And it is like this weird, like Metal Gear Solid ass thing because the stated purpose of this art installation is to remind Dublin, Ohio of our ecological farming agrarian past. So it's like... (laughs) It's to remind Ohio of their sins. Yeah, essentially. (laughs) And the first time I ever saw it, it was raining and someone had gone and put ponchos over each individual ear of corn. And it looked like something out of Metal Gear Solid or um, Death Stranding. So that's my fun Ohio thing. And... Um, I know we have an icebreaker question coming up, but I think it's worth noting my wrestler has like a Twin Peaks gimmick. Um, So yes, I like spooky stuff. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for segueing perfectly into our discussion question, which is that I wanted to ask my co-host, do you like spooky stuff? I think I I say I don't like spooky stuff. I like to think I don't like spooky stuff, but... (laughs) That's a lie! (laughs) (laughs) But I am still playing Phasmophobia fairly regularly, even though it came out a year ago. And basically, my old roommate that I used to live with discovered at one point that if she just, like, put a spooky show, like, on Netflix, on TV, I would have no choice but to watch it. And (laughs) now my partner learned that lesson from her and now does the same thing to me. <laughs> so yeah, I, I do I do watch a lot of spooky shit now uh, and play a lot of spooky games. But I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I still don't consider myself like a lover of horror, if that makes sense. I mean, how many hours do you have on Phasmophobia? Because it's a lot, I feel like. Let's check. I'm level like 400 something. Holy so. shit. Oh my god. Uh, 81.9 hours on Phasmophobia. That's, that's not as many that's as I respectable. thought. But- Yeah, that's still a hefty amount for someone who does not like scary games. So for me, uh, so Dork has played 81.9 hours of Phasmophobia. When Phasmophobia came out and we were all going to play together, I also bought it. And my experience with it was our friends and my ex and we all went into this house. I stayed in the truck because I was scared. And then at one point (laughs) I went in and I was just following my ex around because I was scared. And she is like, 
a champ with this stuff. Like, she just thinks everything is funny. She's like, this is so stupid. Like, none of this is scary. So I was following her around. And then the ghost found us and killed us all. And I I think I just started, I don't, I don't know. I don't remember. I kind of blanked it out uh, out of fear. I think I just locked everyone, everyone's corpse within the room. I think I was the only one alive. And I just left. I just, I just went back into the truck and I just sat there. I think we had to end the game. And then I promptly refunded it. <laughs> so do I like spooky stuff? Yes, if it's not that kind of stuff. Like I watched the Fear Street movies on Netflix. I thought those were great. I watched Midnight Mass, which honestly wasn't that spooky. It was kind of like more dramatic than anything. It had spooky themes. Yeah, like that's like, like you know, like there's like the whole spectrum, right? I don't like things that are trying to scare me, I guess. But like I like unsettling kind of creepy ambiance and horror and stuff like that. So there's my answer. <laughs> I personally really like spooky stuff. I am very picky about what that means in terms of individual things. Like there's like big genre chunks of horror movies. And I'm like, no, that's really not for me. But um, I love ghost stories. I love those tacky ghost hunting shows. The tackier, the better. Um, I love horror games, spooky, spooky books and shows. And I'm warming up to horror movies. Um, I like my horror a little more like cerebral versus like violent. So horror movies have taken me a little while to get into. But yeah, I like I like spooky stuff. I'm a big fan. Did you watch the Nick Cage? Um, is it the color? Oh, the color out of space. Yes, that one. Yes. Yes, okay. I did. Which is uh, both incredibly scary and also incredibly good. I was a big fan of that one. You talked about watching that movie. I believe oh, in during the our Week. Monster of the Week arc. Yes, because there's evil trees in it. And after we did that recording, um, David and I watched it. And Oh, yeah. Did you have nightmares? I didn't sleep well Oh, I didn't have nightmares, but I didn't sleep well that night. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I see. It's it's interesting that you like spooky stuff, and you thought that one was. I didn't think that movie was scary when I watched it. Yeah, I I feel like um, body horror, horror is really is subjective. Yeah, yeah, body horror really gets me. Okay, I a lot of times enjoy content that that contains it because I feel like those are the most interesting stories. But when it happens, I'm like, no, 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 and I get very freaked out. So yeah, like I like I don't I shouldn't say I like I think body horror is interesting. But like yeah, when like I don't know someone's like doing gross things, like reaching into someone's eye or something, I'll I'll like I'll just like close my eyes and be like no. But it's not like <laughs> it's not like I run away and I turn it off. I'm just like I just kind of quote unquote power through it, even though I'm not really looking at it. That's the way I am for jump scares. Yeah, I don't like jump scares just because yeah. I don't know. I'm a baby. <laughs> <laughs> They're the most anxiety-like of all scares. So yeah. yeah, I'm not. I'm not a fan personally. But what I am a fan of is this game that we're about to play. So let's go ahead and uh, talk about it a little bit. So as I mentioned earlier, the game that we're playing for this chapter is What's So Cool About Monster Blood by G. Michael Truran for Bad Quail Games, which is a uh, zine style TTRPG, which is designed to be like printed and physically put in a notebook or folded into a small booklet so you can like carry it to your friend's house or give it to somebody. And it's based on the game What's So Cool About Outer Space by Jared Sinclair, which was uh, sort of the first like prominent zine style game like this. Um, and it kicked off sort of a, a whole mini genre of these types of games that I will be referring to as What's So Cool Abouts. So there has been a What's So Cool About Jam. There's a whole bunch of these What's So Cool About games. I chose this one because I like spooky stuff and we'll get into some of the influences on What's So Cool About Monster Blood as we discuss a little bit. But also it's just really different than anything we've played before. 
a zine style game. It, it occupies like a really interesting niche in the TTRPG scene. So there's been like a trend in the indie tabletop community of like writing kind of this unique, very simple style of system and then running a jam to let people iterate on that as almost like a counter to some of the bigger companies that really want to lock down their systems and make them overly complex. First, there were like solo games like The Wretched and the Alone. And then like now it's kind of transitioned even to its own thing. But I love this idea of like, hey, I wrote this cool system. If people want to like feel free to join this jam now and just like iterate on stuff. Our friend and uh, podcast spouse, Kat, who was uh, (laughs) with us a few arcs ago, um, they do a lot of those with the games that they write. They've had at least two or three jams by now, so... Mm -hmm. I'm really bad at writing for jams because I procrastinate and forget about things. So I love the idea, even (laughs) if I can't like operate in that same regard. Yeah, I'm envious of how much cat can like output like they just fucking go on a productivity streak. And it's just like, it's just like the beginning of a day, I'll see they make a tweet about working on something at the end of the day, they're like, all right, I published it. It's like, what the fuck? How do you do (laughs) that? Very, very prolific. (laughs) Yes. But that's um, that's the sort of activity that kind of like gets me inspired to work on my own stuff. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thanks for so much for the, the context behind these jams, because I know that the indie scene and the fact that people are so open about sharing their systems has made a really big difference in terms of inspiring me to design games and do that because it feels like there's so many tools out there to help you figure out how to make like the exact game you want to make. And it's really wonderful. I just think zines are cool. Like the idea of having like a magazine page type printed material is just nice. And I think it's just because I'm a kind of a consumer whore. Um, and I just like having things because you know when you think about it's like D&D books are very like affordable for like how much content is in them sort of you know it's like what $50 for like all this crap and we're not going to talk about the ethics of how they manage that (laughs) that's that's a different conversation but like you know the idea of having these like smaller games that are easily accessible and and easy to be printed out at home you know without using lots and lots of ink um it's just neat anyone can print a zine yes and like anyone can make a zine and so it's kind of like self-publishing for the the ttrpg space Yeah, and it's cool because like when I was living in New York, there's this one LGBT indie bookstore and like they have this whole section that's just like zines. And that's just zines just remind me of that. Just like this kind of not underground, but like kind of within the community on the streets type of like, you know, this is how you make the change you want kind of thing, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So now that we've talked a little bit about zine games in general, let's go ahead and get a little more specific about this game in particular. So I believe that this is true of all of the What's So Cool Abouts, but in particular, Monster Blood is an extremely rules-like game. It's based around a core set of very simple rules and then a lot of improv and storytelling with your group at the table. So the really specific rules that it gives you are something is always happening, which means that you should give your players stuff to do. Nothing never happens, which means that every action should have a consequence. These aren't all the rules, so homebrew is like encouraged and and you and your your group you're playing with should have fun with it and also be excellent to each other, which is uh, self-explanatory, but hell yeah, I'm totally up for that. It's not GM versus player where you try to ruin our lives and we struggle against the man. <laughs> well, it can be, but... Uh, <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm uh, as as I've said on the show before, um, I'm a huge fan of this collaborative approach versus the GM versus players approach that sometimes pops up. So I'm glad that be excellent to each other is an explicit rule of the very short list of explicit rules. So I know that we've played some improv heavy games before, but how are you all feeling about the balance of improv versus rules in this game just based on your like first impression of reading through? It was kind of intimidating for me. Um, You know, I've mentioned before, I like a little bit more structure in my games and instructions just because it's like for Monster Blood, the theme of it like is really clear and kind of like the tone it's trying to set, especially when you consider the pieces it draws inspiration from like like bloodborne and i know like the whole point is supposed to be like here are these kind of vague prompts or plot points of like i don't want to get too much into it because i I think that's something you're about to go into but like reading that i'm like okay but what what now what do i do like i don't know how to you know make this character because it's just like so wide open for me and as people have seen of my GM notes, I like to flesh out a lot of different details for like world building and stuff like that. So for me, it was a little intimidating to kind of like jump in and like make a character based kind of on the very open guidelines they offer in the rules. Well, here's a follow up question to that. Is the case there that the problem is that it is rules light or is the problem that it is setting light? Both. <laughs> Because okay. like, because like the character creation was very straightforward, which like I, I am thankful for because uh, I've had a very busy few weeks and and I was able to sort of like write out a quick thing in like 10, 15 minutes, which is great. But I think I also it took me a while because I was just like, I don't really know how to approach this because like for creating character, it's like, you know, you need like a, a name, uh, you need a list of items that you can just like make up an occupation and two skills are good at and it's just like yeah i did run into a point we'll discuss it more when we get into character creation but there was the point at which i was like am i allowed to have this thing or this skill like what is too powerful for like a player to have at what point do i have too much agency basically which, like, when we played Henshin, that was a very, very rules-like game. But the character creation was very straightforward and cut and dry. They gave you all of that information to start with. They gave you a playbook. Yeah. And in this, it's kind of like, you have an item. Tell us what that item is. And I'm like, okay, but so is that item, like, a journal that I write shit down in? Or is that item, like, a super powerful fortune telling device that never gives me a wrong answer like <laughs> i mean i fell somewhere in the middle because you know those were extreme examples but yeah yeah you know what i mean i mean just to touch a little bit on the setting it's just kind of like this is a world with beasts and there's a moon and monster blood that give you powers and i'm just like i don't know what to do with this <laughs> Because I'm just like, that. you could do, you can think about, you know, there's a lot of different ways to go with that, right? Like, so it was, I mean, obviously we're here, we we have the character, so it ended up working out. But for me, I'm a baby and I need my hand to be held a little bit more. <laughs> I also think I'm much more comfortable with it at this point in like our tabletop journey than I would have been like four or five games ago. Mm-hmm. Like, I think games like Henshin and even games like Dungeon Bitches, games that are much more like freeform have done a good job of like preparing me for a game like this all of this is what happens when you only play dungeons and dragons and d20 games for like the first 10 years of your tabletop experiences it 
teaches (laughs) you those patterns that we are now kind of having to unlearn. Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like this is a game that really is meant to be played in person because I feel like the discussion during character creation is a component that would solve a lot of the issues that you all are mentioning here. That unfortunately is just not what happens when you set up a game in advance to play on a podcast. <laughs> like we can yeah. we can discuss back and forth a little bit, like ask questions, but there's a big difference between like all sitting at a table being like, oh, oh, mine's going to have X, Y, and Z. Mine's going to have this really cool sword that's going to do this thing. And the GM's like, do a slightly different thing, please. Or everyone together is coming up with how they're a unit and coming up with these cool groups ideas. And I think that would add a lot of flavor to this game that isn't necessarily present when you're doing it long distance and you're doing it, you know, in a setup to a recording session where you're trying to like have a campaign that's like a certain length. Yeah, it's not just me sending quickly scribbled down notes to Ziva at one in the morning, like, hey, let me know if there's any changes <laughs> I need to make. <laughs> and then when she's like, no, it looks good the next morning, you're half awake. Uh, and you're like, okay, cool. And you go back to sleep. <laughs> That's definitely not a thing that literally happened. Of me? Go back to sleep? Last minute? (laughs) No. Don't do that. I don't do that. I'm always prepared. It's interesting because for me... I've played like a lot of different kinds of games and even before I did like official tabletop stuff like again I'm sorry to keep pulling from ancient high school I promise I don't think about this like all the time it's just so funny um that that's kind of where my role-playing journey started like in high school I started on like live journal and forum role play. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like that was very free form and like making up the rules as we go. And then like my fiance and I met from Twitter role play and then I got to know them through that. So it was really like the character stuff is the focus. Like the rules are fine. Like we just kind of have to trust and like talk through it and have this kind of like shared unspoken pact that we're gonna not like power game each other because if that happens then the narrative suffers in a way like stuff like this is actually like coming back to that like I really love rules and mechanics now that I have gotten into the tabletop sphere but I'm comfortable with either and probably the thing I'm like least comfortable with is like D&D or Pathfinder or other like super super crunchy games because it's just like my brain can only think of like okay is there something that I'm missing or some like side thing that I can't get like the first game I ever ran was Shadowrun 3rd edition oh Um, Oh, no (laughs) and that was a disaster because I couldn't get the sequence like I just wasn't experienced enough to know all the combat rules so someone had to like write out a guide for me and like help me through that and it was just miserable yeah I mean Shadowrun's like a hard one even for people who like that kind of oh, stuff. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. It was just like that was the game I happened to be in. So, you know, something like that, it's like, okay, like the most important part to me and the most fun part was just like us bopping around the town like doing random things. And I like I had a lot of fun guiding the players through that bit, but having to stack all the rules and remember how many pockets you had, like that just <laughs> like that just takes away from all that for me. Like I do like some structure generally but I can also live with just freeform but like having like a steel cage uh, like Iron Maiden situation that's (laughs) facing me with rules is like something I personally can't deal with yeah 
And I found the difference between like something like this and forum roleplay, which I've also had a lot of experience with, is like on forum, like written out roleplay like that, I have time to kind of think about what I'm going to say and do. And this is much harder for me when I have to like come up with it on the fly. Yeah, that's true too. Like, because you can kind of ruminate on things and work it out before you have a reply. Whereas this is like entirely off the cuff. That is something that I've gotten better with, I think, and eventually gotten really natural with myself. And some of it, like, live streaming actual plays kind of, like, forced me to. But also, I'm really good at thinking of characters in, like, five seconds. Like, that is probably my strongest skill when it comes to tabletop. As long as I have a voice for an NPC, like, I can kind of just go. Or, like, Blades in the Dark has really good tables in the back for coming up with random characters. But it's... It's like, okay, I've got like three adjectives and a weird thing about them. Like, let's fucking go. (laughs) (laughs) That's a superpower. (laughs) Like my character came together in the last hour because I'd been kind of bouncing around several different concepts. And then through talking to Ziva, I was like, no, I got this now. (laughs) And yeah, you came up with like a very interesting and like complete character very quick, which is amazing because I waffled back and forth between Linda, who's a very like simple character and like five other ideas for like a month before we started actually recording the podcast. (laughs) I mean, I also did that, but then it came together in the last hour. I don't remember my process for real at all. You you made an anime child who suffers. So (laughs) I think real is kind of a character that you kind of had bouncing around in your head for a while, if I remember correctly. That seems right. (laughs) Anime child who suffers and is like partially kind of a furry is basically my like. It's your brand. It's my brand. It's just my default. It's like my skeleton, you know, and then I just kind of add different details to be like, yep, totally different from all these other OCs. Don't look at them too, too much. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the setting then, since we've alluded to it in a couple places. It is heavily based on the video game Bloodborne that we've mentioned a couple times, which is one of my favorite games ever, which is why I chose this one to play. And there's a really nice little blurb here that the author included about what's so cool about Monster Blood's like themes. So I'm just going to go ahead and and just read that because I think it really nicely sets the tone. Track and slay the beasts that beset the city. Unravel the mystery of the scholastic masters who discovered the blood. Divine the intent of the dreaded moon. Or plumb the ruins below the city to discover from whence the blood came. It's all up to you. So if you're not familiar with Bloodborne, I think that pretty much says it. Uh, There's beasts, there's like forbidden knowledge, there's the moon, there's blood. That pretty much covers it. Bloodborne and this game have a mix sort of between a gothic horror and a cosmic horror in a, you know, roughly Victorian style city that has a mysterious blood plague that has begun to turn its citizens into beasts. And so, uh, as you can probably tell by a lot of the things that we've talked about and also from that little blurb, there are going to be horror themes in this chapter. And we've already talked about them a little bit, but some of the horror themes that are just sort of baked into the game so they're unavoidable are transformation, blood, and compulsion. I'm going to do my best to stay away from um, explicit gore. And as usual, we'll give content warnings for any particular sensitive topics that pop up in individual episodes. But if horror squicks you out, if you're not into transformation or blood or compulsion themes, I would um, probably recommend that you not listen to this chapter or at least just (laughs) listen to the beginning and end, whatever's going to make you the most comfortable. Also, I think it's really important to talk about consent in role playing, which we've done before. But since we're doing another horror e-arc, a peek behind the curtain here, we're using the X card as our safety tool. Um, on the Discord while we record. So listeners, keep in mind if you're playing this with a group and you're not sure what everyone's limits are or you just want to make sure that everyone is is really comfortable and safe at the table, 
please consider having some discussion ahead of time and using some safety tools. We've all, in, you know, in some direction of the square known each other for a while. And so we're just using the X card as our safety tool. But like I said, it is important when you're playing games with heavy themes, including horror games, that you consider the safety of everyone at your table. I do have two questions. Yes, ask away. Okay, so that is also the plot of Bloodborne, where people are, there's a blood plague that's turning people in monsters. Yes. Okay. And then what is compulsion? I don't know the context of that in this context, so, I guess. Um, so basically, <laughs> like, um, oh, I'm trying to think of like a, like a good way to describe this without doing spoilers. So the blood beckons is the best way to think of it. Is it like instinct or something like yeah, that? Kind that's of, kind yeah. of, yeah. Oh, so like so- someone being like compelled, kind yes. of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. To, to do okay, something like that, basically characters losing their agency because of the world, because of other characters, because of the blood or the blood taking over them. I see. Yeah. Or like other forces, um, which may or may not exist in different capacities, you know, like okay. the unknowable as kind of like a broader thing. Yeah. So sort of the themes that you would typically see in like cosmic horror with a little bit of gothic flavor of like there's stuff bigger than us there's these unknowable forces there is the compulsion to do things that are outside of our agency stuff is going to take you over stuff like that and sorry i also do a like um video series with my friends on exploring the architecture and themes of bloodborne you're a busy guy <laughs> I, I'm kind of like the novice in that, like the person that hasn't played Bloodborne, but like knows a lot about other different horror and other stuff. But like, it's like, what if we had Catholicism, but we fucked it up um, real bad? Uh, <laughs> Didn't we? Did Catholicism <laughs> not do that itself? Yeah, it did. It did. <laughs> but even more like twisted in the like cosmic horror direction. I didn't want to assume. I'm like, oh, if there's someone that's Catholic here, I don't um, well, you nope. might have offended a listener or two, but <laughs> um, goodbye. No, <laughs> See ya. Uh, but yeah, and then the, another thing that's really important is one thing that is really strong about Bloodborne is reckoning with the idea of imperialism and specifically like imperialism, but from a distinctly like Japanese lens of like reckoning with the idea of like other foreign powers coming in and twisting like an already bad imperialist system or like Western imperialism as viewed from a remove, if that makes any sense. Bloodborne is definitely like Yarnum itself is kind of a very like Western uh, European city, specifically like they used Eastern Europe as like a big touch point. So like Romania and stuff like that and kind of looking at the ills that were done through that system, but as like an uninvolved third party, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for providing a little more Bloodborne background. Those themes, I think, really put into context, like, hey, yeah, it is really fucked up how Catholicism, like, just expects, especially in the bad form that was present in the era of indulgences and stuff like that, like, to demand 
like total understanding and trust without still to this very day without kind of like letting the people in mass like in and kind of like having consent like there explicitly like isn't consent in that system so much it's like you just have to trust us and assume that we'll never do any bad stuff while we're like acting as the arbiters of this great knowledge and mysticism and then it's like Hey, but what if we didn't hold our end of the bargain, right? So Catholics and Cthulhu <laughs> are the same thing. Cthulhuism? <laughs> in, <laughs> a little bit in Bloodborne, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I don't know anything about Bloodborne, except I know there is gothic person with a tricorn hat. Everything is brown and gray. There's like a werewolf lady person that people think is sexy or something. Yeah, for some inexplicable reason. Yeah. <laughs> and then my roommate was playing a bit of Bloodborne and he was playing against one of the bosses who had like a scythe or something and he would just say slam and each time I would just like think of Space Jam where it's like, <laughs> come on and slam and welcome to the... But you know, obviously he didn't say that whole line, which I think would be very funny if he did, but no, he just... He, it just sounded like he said slam. He might be saying something else. I mean, as soon as you said slam, I also thought of Space Jam, so. Yeah. Valid. <laughs> How about you, Dorka? Are you, are you familiar with Bloodborne at all? Not even a little bit. Okay, so this is, this is brand new territory for you. Before this week, I could not have even, like, pointed out the gameplay if I saw a video of it. I could not have seen a video and said, like, oh yeah, that's Bloodborne. I Actually, I still couldn't do that. Is it a gothic person in a long trench coat wearing a tricorn hat? It's Bloodborne. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it pretty much covers it. <laughs> but yeah, this is completely un untread territory for me. Well, excellent. This will be this will be a interesting to see how you feel at the end of the game about how the world has treated you. So to sort of like bridge the gap between the setting and the characters, all of the players in What's So Cool About Monster Blood play the same role that player characters do in Bloodborne, which is that they're all beast hunters. The GM, they have a cute name for it. They call them the Dreamer, which is a little bit of um, Bloodborne lore that we won't necessarily get into. But all the players in this case are hunters. Um, so as we've mentioned, character creation for this game is also pretty light. Um it's based largely on descriptives with a very small amount of stats. Um, and I'll just go ahead and cover this briefly since we've already done some back and forth discussion about what it's been like to create the characters for this game. So essentially, you come up with a name description for your hunter, some items that they have, a job you had before being a hunter, which you can then use to your advantage in various actions, two things you're good at, and then you also get the stats Gnosis and Morphus, which are the stats where really this game wears Bloodborne on its sleeve in terms of like mechanics. We'll get into that in a little bit more because it's um, really important and I want to make sure that we dedicate a little bit of time to it. So in terms of how then you actually play the game is there is a lot of storytelling and improv, but rolling wise, this fits a nice balance in between roll 1d6 and dice goblin, which is that your rolls are based on 2d6 in one color and 1d6 in a color that stands out, which is, I don't know, personally, I like rolling handfuls of dice. And so that feels pretty good to me. Um, and you have to have multiple colors. So my dragon horde is going to come and use this game. When you try to do any action in the game, you roll two dice. So you add plus one to your score for each advantage that you have, and then you have to justify that advantage to the table. So for example, if you have a vial of holy water and you're fighting like a ghost, that would be a plus one. If you have a vial of holy water and you're fighting just like a regular dude, uh, the table probably is going to say that's not going to fly unless like he really is afraid of getting wet. 
and then you take a minus one for each disadvantage you have. So for example, if a monster knocks a weapon out of your hand, you'd subtract one from your roll. If it's eight or higher, you succeed in your action. If it's less than eight, you fail and then something else happens. So as I mentioned earlier, the fact that something happens when you fail is actually a super important component of this game. So I have a question. Yes. The example you gave with the weapon being knocked out of your hand, is that something we would just role play or is that something we would make a roll for? I feel like it would depend on the situation. If it was like in the middle of combat, I would probably prefer to just role play it. Yeah. I mean, if it was like the monster like lunges at you and you're struggling, it could be something that you roll for. Okay. Yeah. So it's just situational. Yeah. Okay. So how do you, how do you all feel about this like rolling action system? It's interesting. I like this sort of system where you get to decide what to roll and like make an argument for it to the GM rather than just like picking from a list of skills. I liked it all the way back when we did it in 13th Age. I like it in Heroic Chord. As much as I like structure, I am definitely an advocate these days for a either reduced skill list or just no skill list at all and just like letting the situation and your advantages dictate that and like let you make an argument for what you're rolling. I just think that's a fun system. Yeah, like uh, back in October of last year, I was playing in this campaign uh, for a game called Abyssal. And that's sort of what it is, where it's like, you, you just like suggest things. It's not even like you have a skill list, but you can also be like, okay, but what if I do this thing on top of it? And like, can I add a dice? Which like, yeah, it just gives more like creative freedom to be like doing cool things, I guess. Yeah, I definitely agree with the creative freedom element. It also can kind of make you feel more involved. Like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like I totally get now that you all said that you don't really have as much experience with Bloodborne itself. I can totally get where not having that structure and the rules might have been more helpful just because you didn't have like the understanding coming in. But I think, yeah, like for me at least, once we get into the game and like provide that structure ourselves, like find our sea legs, like talking through having a role can kind of be very helpful. I don't know if you've played any game from like the Honey Heist lineage. It's on my <laughs> list. <laughs> yeah, because that kind of has like a similar thing where you have a skill and then like you can kind of dictate whether those things like apply to the role that you're making and kind of have that conversation. I think it can be really helpful to like talk it out and get everyone not on the same page necessarily, but have the buy-in of like, yeah, it totally makes sense that because you're Duff the cake maker, you would be good at knowing temperatures for things, you know, like and kind of figure out where those limits are on the fly, but you're all making that decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like this propose things to the table and then talk back and forth about them is is one of my favorite things that I've discovered from sort of getting into the indie games and getting out of the D&D sphere, because I, I do feel like it absolutely increases the creativity and it absolutely increases the investment that you have in the game and in the group as a whole. But I also just think it's fun. Like one of my favorite games that we've played, at least magic wise, has been Heroic Chord for that reason, which is that I just have a lot of fun trying to like think about how to do the thing that I'm trying to do in like a way that's going to be impactful and in a way that works. And I find that personally just a lot more engaging than just rolling with no creative component added. So so I'm a huge fan and I am not going to talk about Heroic Chords magic all day because I've already talked 
talked about it 8 billion times, <laughs> but, um, but I love these sort of creative bouncing off ideas against the table. I think it also helps to keep the other players at the table invested, even when it isn't necessarily their turn. Yeah, you don't get like European board game syndrome, where the one person's taking their turn and everyone else is like tired and zoned out and not paying attention to what's going on. Because yeah, it, it's, it, it gets everyone kind of on the same on the same page there about what's going on at the table. Or the worst scenario, D&D combat, where I was about to say you have that like the thing. wizard looking through their like 20 pages of spells, and then you have the warlock that's just like, I cast Eldritch Blast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I cast Eldritch Blast and then crouch behind this rock again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's always good to get everyone at the table like on the same page and not one person taking a lot of time and one person having no time. Yeah, and it's just fun like at a base level, what, like creatives or anyone really, any human person, like we like to share ideas and then get feedback from it, especially positive feedback like, oh yeah, that's like a really cool idea. So let's go ahead then and talk about the other component of rolling and then like the the two big stats in the game which are gnosis and morphus which like i said is really where the bloodborne influence um really really shines through so gnosis is a stat every player starts with zero but gnosis builds up during the game when a player decides to give in to the forbidden knowledge drawn from the moon so this is like eldric knowledge so in bloodborne gnosis would be insight and Morphus, on the other hand, comes from giving in to the beast nature, which is drawn from the monster blood. In Bloodborne, this is like, well, it's like blood. <laughs> but the way that both of these work is that when you want to add Gnosis or Morphus to one of your roles, so for example, you you use some forbidden knowledge to contribute to your action, you add your extra distinct color die to your roll, so you're rolling three dice. And then you keep the two best. If one of those two best is the extra die, so the one that's a different color, you compare it to your relevant score, so your gnosis or your morphus. If it's higher than that score, then that score goes up by one. Over time, this gives your character new effects that you can then um, have serve as advantages or disadvantages as well. So if your gnosis increases, tell us what new fear, belief, or compulsion in the moon is inspired in you. If your morphus increases, you tell us what new aspect of beasts manifests in your physical being. And then if either of them reaches six, they take over. And this is basically how you die in this game, is if your gnosis or your morphus gets too high, there's a variety of outcomes that can happen with that. So basically, in addition to just like rolling rolling around, having adventures, fighting monsters, solving mysteries, you can also um, sort of give in to forbidden knowledge or give in to um, becoming a beast yourself. You can use those to your advantage, but if you use them too much, it is dangerous and it can it cause your hunter to have a variety of effects. So how do you all feel about this gnosis, morphous, both system in terms of rolling and also how do you feel about it as like a, like a concept? The mechanics confuse me a little bit bit, but I, I'm sure it's one of those things that I'll understand once we have it in play. It's not because it's inherently confusing. It's just for me, when you add multiple steps to things, it just, I get lost in it unless I, I super break it down and kind of like stare at each step by step. But the concept is my fucking shit. Hell yeah. I love that stuff. I love just like exploring the dark side of people or the bestial side or just kind of like the duality of people in general. And I love that edgy anime edgelord type shit. So I am all for it. 
I like this sort of system. I think we touched on it and talked about it during our Dungeon Bitches arc about how it's always really cool when like a game gives you mechanical consequences to your actions that aren't just like hit point damage. The idea of like these consequences actually having an effect and changing your character and the way you roleplay with them is always like really cool to me. And it's hard to pull off in, like, a good and responsible way, I think. And I think what's so cool about Monster Blood really does it so simply. Yeah, absolutely. I'm honestly very excited to see how this shakes out during the gameplay. I agree with Bappy that I found a little complicated when I was reading the first time. I actually think in this case that the zine format, this is like the only place where I feel like it doesn't work for this game because I feel like an example would have been really helpful. But after I read it like a couple times and like wrote down some notes, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. And I'm, oh, this is very exciting. (laughs) I do really like that. um, Yeah, there's something other than HP that you're actually like really keeping track of and that the limit that your character runs into makes sense in the universe as opposed to you run out of arbitrary number and you die. I, I just think it's it's interesting and different. And I think it's going to be really exciting to see how this turns out. Yeah, like it actually reminds me of Scatter in Heroic Court. Like Heroic Court does have HP, but like Scatter is also like kind of a, a limiter in that sense where like it doesn't kill you if you run out of Scatter, but it's sort of like it has that effect on your role play and also mechanically. And what I like about this system is you have to choose it. There is no HP in this game. You can't just, like, die from losing all of your health. So you you always have the option of just, I guess, failing the mission. But you have to choose to sort of make these sacrifices and take these higher numbers in order to, like, accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. That's really good for narrative. It's good for agency and it's good for narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Hey everybody, thanks so much for listening. I wanted to jump in with a quick reminder that you can support us by leaving a review on Podchaser or iTunes. Since we're an independent show, this helps us a ton. You can also support us by buying stickers, making a one-time donation, or joining as a monthly supporter on our Ko-fi page at ko-fi.com slash theeternityarchives. Our monthly supporters get exclusive behind-the-scenes content like character sheets, GM notes, and access to our fan discord. Before we get back to it, here's a message from another great show on the Be Gay Roll Dice Network. Check them out and give them a listen. Thanks so much and enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome to the world of Super Idols RPG, where superpowers exist, but only among those with dreams of pop star fame and glory. Anyone who believes in that dream can be a super idol. Be they an awkward gothic Lolita? Yeah, Valerie has her phone out. Uh, her phone screen's not on. Her <laughs> oh, phone no. looks closely. A recovering mean girl. Just to establish for no weird reason at all, but you all do go to this school, right? <laughs> <laughs> An excitable fanboy. Can can you? I'm really shy, but can you ask him if they can sign my jumper? Wait, hold on. Oh no, I transformed. Can I have the autograph? A literal queen bee. Sorry to kill your buzz, honey, but you just have to get used to the sting of disappointment. Or a mischievous rapper. Lucia makes more clones of herself so she can have a huddle. Aww. (laughs) Join the members of Rhythmics as they reach for the stars in the second exciting arc of Super Idols RPG. 
a queer, diverse, narrative-focused masks campaign with elements of high school comedy, magical girl anime, showbiz drama, and superhero action. New episodes release every three weeks on Sundays. Check out superidolsrpg.wordpress.com for more details. Okay, so now that we've done the discussion about the game and about the mechanics, tell me about the hunters that you all created. So tell me what kind of items they have, what their job was before being a hunter, and then two of the things that they are good at. Oh, tell us your character's name too, if you don't mind, Mikey, since I don't think you mentioned it earlier. Yeah, I didn't. I kind of had to create it because he had a wrestler name. So his name is Damon Hertz. His pronouns are he, him. Damon is a wrestler, or that's what he was back on his world. He comes from a one shot I played of the game, Worldwide Wrestling 2nd Edition. I think it was a little difficult for him to adjust at first, just because it's like he was so focused. And I actually had to like come up with his outside of character personality and like name. Um, Because before he was El Diabolico Doble de la Desperacion. Um, And he (laughs) was from the. Yeah. (laughs) Or Triple D for short. (laughs) And he was billed from the City of Angels. And his whole thing is Twin Peaks. But he has like this charismatic, intimidating figure in the wrestling ring. But then outside of it, he's really just like a guy that's kind of nerdy. A lot of that charisma is like a face that he puts on because outside of that, he's just someone that like does his graduate school degree and he likes to study. I think it was a little weird because like he likes spooky stuff. He likes books and everything like that, but it's like really whiplash. And there is a part of him that has been like missing that like wrestling and persona and everything. So he probably like gets along pretty well with everyone or is congenial enough, but there's like a part of him that's been kind of distant. What was his grad school degree for? I think it's going to be for like electrical engineering. Oh, wow. <laughs> Big old nerd will fit right yeah. in. <laughs> Doing also like the very stereotypical thing of having a character's name be similar to like what he is so like Damon is like demon and then Hertz is just like the frequency thing oh my gosh (laughs) also as in hurting like when you're wrestling someone that's what I was thinking I was thinking like the man hurts no no, it's H-E-R-T-Z I see I see it works on multiple levels correct Uh, What what are your items? He is wearing, his hunter clothes are a diaphanous draping cloak. Or maybe not diaphanous because that's like see-through, but like (laughs) whenever you see like eco-goth stuff or like cyberpunk clothing, like think like that. Okay. Like kind of translucent? Yeah, it's not translucent. It's just like very thin and like flowy. Okay. Um, So like... Jedi clothes, but make it fashion. Okay. <laughs> um, and chunky, solid boots. So, like, he he looks like he came out of, like, a Dune cosplay or something. <laughs> so his clever weapon is a claw hand glove. Like, not quite as long as, like, a Freddy Krueger glove, but it's just kind of like a metal glove that has claw hands. And his occult tool is a metal and marble emblem that hangs from his belt. 
and the shape of his eye makeup, which I will provide an image that I drew of him so you can understand what that means. And another cool thing he has is a scroll in an unknown script, like written in an unknown script. It's wingdings. (laughs) (laughs) Basically. Um, And the job he used to have. I just, since we're librarians, I just gave him like the job he used to have that he no longer has, which is wrestler. And his skills are like being charismatic and playing a role and like being genre and story savvy. Like he knows what a plot is. (laughs) Damon's Beast Memento is a glistening blood vial with a tooth in it. Ooh. Well, wonderful. Uh, man, he's going to have an interesting time, I feel like, in this world. Yeah, sure Both is. of them. <laughs> so, obviously, y'all already know about Rill. Um, so, for their clothes and armor, um, not to get too into it. Honestly, I always picked, like, the most boring stuff because they're just, like, very plains clothes, kind of. But it's just, like, kind of like a dark leather armor, hooded cloak. So their clever weapon is a gun. There is more to it than that, but just it is kind of a magic gun gonna be powered by blood magic and then their occultic tool i think like a herb or medicine kit because that'll kind of come in with their two skills the beast memento is like a dragon like i think i'm gonna go with tooth i was trying to decide between tooth or claw um we're gonna go with tooth and it kind of has like a a low burning luminescence kind of like an orange glow and then another cool thing is I put Nintendo Switch. I don't think Ziva's going to let me do that. <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah, so they're they're cool thing. So it is a carved wooden mask that's kind of like shaped like a skull with, with antlers and stuff. And there's like kind of glowing eye holes. And it was carved from a tree that like instead of being watered by water, it got watered through monster blood. And then their previous job in this world, I just put medical practitioner because I was like, well, they weren't, I don't think they'd be like a nurse or like a doctor or anything, but you know, because they have that medical sort of experience. And then for the two skills, kind of as always, I did first aid and cooking. Excellent. So Dorka, uh, what's your hunter have going for them? All right. So Zen is going to be a human in this game again. I think we touched on that briefly. So yeah, she's going to be wearing like a long, dark like one of those long overcoats that you see like cool people wear in these games over just like sturdy leather pants, uh, a simple shirt and like a heavy metal breastplate. Her weapon, her clever weapon is like a long glaive with like a dark wooden shaft and a dark metal blade. Her occult tool is a compass that doesn't point north, but always points back to the last position she set it to. Her beast memento is the bile gland of a dragon. It's like the the piece of a dragon that lets the dragon breathe fire. Doesn't work so well outside of the actual dragon, but it remains constantly (laughs) hot. So it's kind of like having uh, hot hands all the time. Her job before being a hunter was back in her own world. She was a mercenary, which is kind of like being a hunter already. There's a lot of uh, crossover in skills there. Yeah, with less cursed moon blood. (laughs) And the the two things that she's really good at is uh, tracking and flirting. Excellent. (laughs) Canonically, she is the only one who has fucked in ever in a game and no no that's not true (laughs) now we've gone ahead and done our discussion are you all ready to go ahead and jump in and start playing yeah let's do some fucked up monster shit 
All right. So since you all got back from your last mission and Zen came to tell you about her desire to go back home to right her own wrongs, it's been a bittersweet and melancholy time as you've been waiting for your next mission. On Linda's part, she has made it her goal to gather all the information that she possibly can on traveling back to homeworlds. After talking with Rawl in their last world, she has the idea that maybe this is actually possible, and if it's possible, she is going to find a way to help Zen do it. And so she has been hanging up flyers asking to interview people about the worlds that they've traveled to. And of course, Linda believes in compensating people for their labor, but she's not sure how uh, everyone feels about money since the library kind of provides. So rather than paying people for their interviews, she is giving them free cupcakes in exchange for their uh, really important information. Oh, Ro will help her bake stuff. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Linda really appreciates that because she likes having some time. And I think she's probably right now like uncharacteristically quiet. Like I think she's she's still thinking a lot about about what Zen said and what's going to happen to them as a group. And so she's sort of taking this opportunity to like relish in everyone's company, but she's not necessarily like she doesn't necessarily want to talk about it because she's still throwing it over in her mind. So with Rill's help, the baking is going great, but the process of finding people is a little bit slower than she'd like. Although she did thankfully finally get her first interview. She had a chat with a giant eagle, like a human-sized eagle, who um, has been to a lot of different universes and had a lot of really good information for her. And so Linda um, happily exchanged them a big pile of Black Forest cupcakes um, since they gave her a lot to think about. Cute. So at this point, she's starting to wonder if she's ever going to find what she needs or if maybe there's some kind of way to like do something on a mission that will force a visit to Zen's homeworld to try and help her um, get where she needs to go. Yeah, so Rill is kind of matching the energy that Linda has where it's kind of the somber and pensive and quiet type thing. And partially with the baking is to kind of help Linda, of course, but also it's just something for them to do as a way to kind of unwind a little bit, but also kind of be able to think more on what occurred in the dungeon bitches in the dark library in regards to the request that was made of them. When they're alone in their room, they sort of flip to that one page that has the mystery script that was not written in their handwriting and just kind of like waiting to see if there's been any more instruction on that end or just something. Um, I don't know, Ziva, if, if you might have more insight in that or is it kind of just the same? It's just the same, unfortunately. So it's... Uh... Real's getting ghosted. <laughs> yeah, Real is getting ghosted. <laughs> The evil Linda made a request of them and now has ghosted them. <laughs> well, then it's a good thing they haven't uh, fulfilled that request. Yeah, because, you know, real wants compensation, question mark? They don't know what's going to happen. Um, but because of the request, because of Zen's reveal that she wants to go home, and also that she comes from, like, an evil empire, <laughs> <laughs> um, Rill has been conflicted because they're like... Is this why I was told to do this? Because, you know, I, I need to put a stop to this. They kind of uh, recall what the the Dalith in Amilte had told them about, like, what is normal isn't necessarily good. 
So they've been kind of chewing on some existential crisis <laughs> ever since. Uh, ever since they all this stuff has been revealed. But damn, they are making some really crazy-looking cakes. They have definitely made a dumpling-shaped cake. Probably oh, wow. a few. <laughs> so what has Zen been up to in this time while well, Linda and Rill are having um, not talking, weird-feeling baking hour? <laughs> I love that Netflix show. <laughs> Zen also has uh, weird feelings. Zen is not really accustomed to, like, asking for help. And despite being, like, kind of the charismatic and friendly one, a lot of that is so that she doesn't really have to, like, talk about herself too much and, like, where she's from and all of her baggage related to that. So the fact that, like, Linda has, like, thrown herself into helping with this is kind of awkward for her. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't really know how to, like, react to that appropriately. She's not used to people helping her without an ulterior motive, but she's not suspicious of Linda. She isn't thinking, like, oh, she must want something. But that's why she's so confused. She's like, Linda doesn't want anything, and I don't know why. Like, is this just how... (laughs) people are when they don't grow up in a super fucked up society like is this is this what normal people are like so i think a lot of times she'll like show up to baking hour like halfway at the end like when there's a lot of stuff that needs to be finished up so that like she doesn't have to be around for like the slow mixing parts where there might be room for conversation oh there's none of that <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it's just kind of um, awkward all around. But on the other hand, like, she does feel kind of a sense of relief. Like, she's glad she told Rill and Linda she doesn't have to, like, keep hiding it from them anymore. Like, now they'll, now they're not, like, constantly trying to pry into her business, which is, is good. So she's kind of relieved, but is still kind of trying to unpack her feelings about all of that. She's also probably eating a lot of cake. Yes. Rill and Linda are stress baking. <laughs> and, and Zen is stress eating. Yeah. <laughs> so Mikey, while, while we've been having no talking bad feelings baking hour, what has Damon been up to in his time in the library? And, and how long? Is he, is he brand new to the library? Has he been here for a little while? Basically brand new. I think like he just got swooped in like not that long ago. So he's still kind of trying to adjust I feel like, given what little I know of Linda, do you think Linda would have tried to have an orientation for him? Oh, yes. As best as best as she can. Uh, she's probably had a slight... It's probably more slightly distracted than she'd really like it to be. But, uh, I mean, she's delighted to meet everyone. But she's probably extra excited when she realized that they have a common frame of reference since Linda's also from regular Earth. And even if they're not from the exact same universe, there's like a nut... Like, Linda knows what Ohio is. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, so she's probably delighted that she doesn't have to, like, explain what a car is or what a computer is. And that they can, like, talk about, you know, somewhat common things. She probably doesn't want to, like, talk about, like, great details in case he's from, like, bizarre parallel Earth. But she's probably at least, like, going through the motions and welcoming him in and um, at least showing him where the book drop is. The rest is a little unpredictable. The library kind of decides what is in orientation. But she'll do her best. I think there's a lot of, like, shock, especially, like, if everyone other than Linda is, like, noticeably not, like, a standard human. 
there's probably a, just a lot of like shock and just acting like everything is normal. <laughs> um, even though like Linda can probably tell that it's not normal or that like he is having this reaction, right? And it's just like all very overwhelming. Like he asks some questions. Like if she mentions, you know, like be careful about this door because sometimes a monster pops out. He's just like, wait, like Cthulhu. And if, you know, if Linda's like, yeah, something like that. It's probably just like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. That is the standard reaction to a lot of the library stuff. So uh, so Linda recognizes that from, at the very least, her first days in the library. Oh, yeah. Jarrell's yeah. uh, just like, oh, yeah, uh, be sure to tell the newbies the difference between the uh, the void tentacles and then the rentacles, because there is a difference, but they look very similar. And I think it throws off a lot of newbies. Of course, you know, one will throw you into the void and disappear you forever. And then the other one just kind of wants their books back so just uh just just keep your eyes out (laughs) i think i think he's like no it's it's fine basically like as soon as he gets the opportunity he's gonna kind of like scurry off into a corner to just like read oh there's plenty of that (laughs) (laughs) there are books here that should not exist like this is all very overwhelming and he probably takes like a stress nap in the stacks Zen is probably going to be very callous about, like, yeah, welcome to the library. You're stuck here. (laughs) (laughs) Damon's just, like, compartmentalizing so much. Like, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's, like, something he's kind of used to doing also, so... So Linda's book club, is he coming or not? Like, if she tells him about it and is very excited, he, like, doesn't want to let her down. But I think then he starts, like, overcompensating by having more of his, like, like, in wrestling, like, the canon or, like, on stage stuff is called, like, kayfabe. Um, So, like, more of his kayfabe persona would end up coming out. So I think probably, like, if he comes out to book club, it's gonna be, like, more of this, like, charismatic goth (laughs) persona (laughs) is, like, the best... So it is a, another day in the library uh, with the, the stress baking and the stress eating and the trying to adjust but doing the opposite of adjusting. Linda herself is taking a break from the stress baking. She has found a weird computer lab somewhere deep in the library that only has huge clunky Windows XP machines. She thinks it's Windows XP, but it's not quite right. And she is in the middle <laughs> of using an ancient copy of some PowerPoint-like program to make another flyer when she gets that tugging in the back of her mind and her journal has updated with a note that says, Travel to Vatishta to meet with Lucia of the Silver Hand. Retrieve the anomaly. And so she gives herself a little sigh. She clicks on the save button and hopes that this is like linked to a user account or something. And, uh closes her journal again and heads off to the book drop to meet whoever is going to be coming with her or anchoring. I guess she'll find out. Brill is still in the kitchen baking. So they're either in the kitchen baking, they are going off to someplace else that they haven't made like a big deal about. I don't think it's like with Zen where Zen was like obviously sneaking off to do something that she was hiding from them. But Rill does have like kind of another thing going on that they are... Rill's more naturally sneaky. Yeah, and they're just, like, you know, more casual about it and not, like, awkward. Which is kind of ironic, because they're usually awkward. Or they're just sitting in their room, like, staring at the journal and trying to be like, okay, where is uh, evil Linda? Like, you know, but... So when the words come back up, 
they kind of flip through their journal to see if there's any other words. And there there aren't, as usual. And they're just like, God fucking damn it. Uh, but they kind of keep that to themselves. Um, and then, yeah, they hobble off to the book drop with... I don't know if Dumpling's with them. Dumpling might, might also still be baking. Teeny tiny little oven. Lots of small <laughs> oven mitts. It's very <laughs> cute. Yeah. Well, Zen has been off doing her own research. She has, like, you know, a room full of scrolls and, and books and just trying to, like, kind of figure stuff out. She's not necessarily doing the research for how to get home, but more, like, trying to figure out, like, a plan of action for if that does happen. Like, what does she do next? Because she's going to have to, like reckon with some stuff when she gets there and if she manages to get home but has no plan then that's not great either so what does she do when her journal gets the update she is ready to go like a mission is always good to like clear the mind and give her some inspiration so she's hoping she's not the anchor she's hoping to get her feet down on the ground and she heads to the book drop so this is probably, I'm guessing, um, since Damon is is relatively new, that this is probably his first mission and his first experience with the journals. Yeah, I think he like actually doesn't know how to find it. So <laughs> I I have the same problem. So I'm just gonna project it onto my character, where like someone can tell me like, oh, this will happen, and it'll feel this way or whatever, but like you don't internalize it. So I think he comes to find Linda and just like is frantically searching for her, is noticeably less sure of himself than he was at the book club. It's just like, I keep getting this buzzing in my head and I figured like you would be the best person to find out what this is, but he has happened to wander to the book drop, so... Well, excellent. So Linda, Linda's gonna sort of like give him like a soothing touch on the shoulder and say, no, no, don't worry. It's totally fine. That's your journal updating. So you're probably supposed to be here. Go ahead and uh, pull it out and, and take a peek. Do, do you have it with you? I think he just like reaches into all of his pockets. He probably has like a hoodie and like black skinny jeans. So there's like a thin like moleskin journal, I think, in his back pocket. And he's like, huh. That, that looks like it. That one must be yours. Well, uh, good news then. It looks like you're probably in the right place. Well, that's a relief. That means you're going to go on a mission with us. How fun is that? Real just kind of gives a little wave from the back, kind of like a little wave. They are trying to hide that they kind of wanted some alone time with Zen so they could have a conversation. But uh, now there's a there's a stranger that they need to be mindful of and not be awkward around. So... <laughs> So Zen is kind of lounging on, like, one of the big oversized chairs. And when she overhears that, like, oh, this guy's going to be coming on a mission with them. And he's new. This is his first time. Zen starts, like, trying to offer helpful advice. First, she's just going to say, so you're human, right? Uh, yeah. Have you always been human? (laughs) Yeah. You've never been anything else? No. Okay, well, you might be something else, so... Prepare yourself for that however you can. (laughs) However you can is the most, like, ominous way possible to say that. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, when you you jump in through this door, it's gonna feel a little weird. Kind of like, um... Kind of like you're being unmade. Yeah, your entire existence just kind of breaks down, and then you get reformed, and it sounds scarier than it is. Is it like a stomach ache? No, it's kind of like a a lot of anxiety, but reverberating throughout every cell of your body and your soul. 
Yeah. No, no, it's it's not that bad. Okay, well, you know, maybe for some of us. It's like a hug. It's kind of like taking a salty bath. Okay, so you're like soup. Yes. <laughs> okay. You know what? None of this is making this any better, so let's just get it over with or whatever. Okay, you might have to do some murder or talking. Um, I don't know if you're cool with murder. <laughs> but talking. I just want Or I'm talking. Cool with talking. Um, um, yeah. Never murdered, but I know how to fight. Okay, cool. You might have to murder. Oh, it'll you be know, fine. No don't judgment. Worry about it. Okay, I'm just gonna head into this door. By the way, my name is Thrill. Nice to meet you. And then they just fall, like, flop over through the <laughs> truck door. <laughs> So while you are doing that, Linda has been flipping through her journal again and realizes that she's the one who's anchoring. And while she realizes that, she also feels the um, odd sensation of heaviness in her pocket that was not there before. And she pulls out a heavy and ornate iron key and three vials of a dark coppery liquid. And she says, oh, well, Zen, can you can you carry these through and make sure Rill gets presumably one of those? Yeah, absolutely. So it says here in this journal that um, it's very important that you drink those first thing when you get to the ground. But um, other than that, all I know is you're looking for this um, this odd little crown, a, a circlet, maybe something, something like that. And she shows you the picture that's in her journal and your eyes kind of like slide off it. It does not make sense, but you can tell it's some kind of, of circlet. So I guess that's what I have for you. Um, hopefully whatever those are, some sort of cool superpower potion or something. Oh, that would be cool. So off you go, and don't you worry, Damon, you'll do great. And uh, I'm sure that Rill and I will have some snacks for you when you get back, and we can decompress, and it'll be great. You'll do fine. Zen kind of claps Damon on the back and starts ushering him towards the book drop, and it's like, it's easiest if you just like jump right in head first. Yeah, I think as they're saying it, he just does that. All right, and in we go. And that's where we'll pick up next time here on the Eternity Archives. The Eternity Archives is hosted, produced, and edited by Dorka, Bappy, and Ziva. Find us on Twitter at, at @thearchivespod or online at theeternityarchives.com. Our intro music is Paint the Sky by Hans Adam, and sound effects are obtained from zapsplat.com. Check out our show notes for more information and some helpful resources. Consider supporting us by telling your friends about us, or leave us a tip at our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash theeternityarchives. Subscribe to our Ko-fi for all sorts of exclusive bonuses, behind-the-scenes content, and other fun surprises. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Be gay. Roll dice. An LGBTQIA actual play podcast network.